Hello, this is Lisa, CEO of Site for White and White Sense, welcoming you to this week's Talking News on Friday, the 2nd of February 2023. This week has seen the quarter end report being written for White Sense. Each quarter, we write a report to the council confirming all of the targets that we are required to meet and how we've got on. I'm delighted to say yet again we have covered all of the targets this month, so a huge thank you to Paula, Karen, Karen and Emma, our White Sense team. Also this week, I have been to the NIHR launch event for the new research buses which will be coming into the region later this year. We were involved at a very early stage in helping to design how the buses should look. It was a very interesting meeting as they had over 50 charities and of course everybody does have different needs. So I'm very glad I wasn't the person making the decision. The result is they have two different designs and they will run both buses simultaneously. One is a younger, more colourful design and the second a more traditional solid cover which offers good contrast to those who do have residual vision to be able to read what the bus is doing and what it's all about. Finally a shout out to thank Susan who organises all of our member events and our volunteers. No small task and this includes the God's Hill Coffee Morning which is being held next Tuesday in aid of Sight for White. So thank you Susan for setting all of the dates up front this year so that we can publish them in the newsletter so that people can save the date. Lisa, CEO, Site for White. Here is this week's charity news for week commencing 5th of February. Monday swimming is at Medina between 1.15 and 2.15pm. We have the whole use of the pool and the cost is £6. Transport is available if required. This is for people who want to swim lengths or just for gentle exercise in the water. Godsill Coffee Morning is on Tuesday at the Old Smithy Godsill between 10.30am and 12pm. Yoga is on Tuesday at Millbrook House between 1.45 and 2.45. The cost is £4 and includes refreshments. Our weekly coffee and chat resumes on Wednesday at Millbrook House between 10am and 11.30am. The cost is £2, which includes coffee and cake. Staff are always on hand to help with any inquiries and equipment will be available to try out. Thursday is Mix and Mingle. This group meets between 10.30am and 2pm. Booking for this group is essential and at the moment there is a waiting list for people to join. We have a Living Well with Sight Loss course on Friday at Millbrook House. This is an informative course and very interesting. It starts at 10am. If you would like more information or to book a place, please call the office. We are now looking for knitters to start knitting our Easter items. So if you know anyone who knits and would like something to do during these cold winter days, please let Susan know and she will send out patterns, etc. We also have a limited amount of wool available. Also, if anyone knows a company who would be willing to donate a few cream eggs to help with the fundraising, Susan would love to hear. Our monthly 100 Club has spare balls available. If anyone would like to buy a ball, it is £2 per month 
or £24 for the full year. The more balls in the draw, the higher the prize money each month. If you would like to take part in our monthly draw, please call the office. This is part of our fundraising activities. If you would like to join any activities or want more details, please call the office on 522205. Ribbon Cut as Playground in Memory of East Cow's Kezia is completed from the Island Echo read by Lee. A children's play park in East Cowes is now complete, five years after it opened in memory of six-year-old Kezia Flux Edmonds. The ribbon was cut at the Bumblebee Garden in East Cowes by Kezia's mother, Nikki, on Wednesday as the latest and last piece of equipment was unveiled. Nikki thanked everyone who had supported her in raising money for the equipment and said it was a lovely final piece in place. The playground opposite Queensgate Primary School was created in memory of Kezia, who was murdered by her father in June 2016. The park opened in 2018, two years after her death, and has been enjoyed by children from across the island since. The climbing frame and slide have been installed, a little later than hoped due to the weather and financial issues, after three years of fundraising. Nikki set up the charity, Kezia's kindness following the death of a daughter to make children smile. Nikki said the new equipment was probably the best thing to happen this year as she revealed she has been diagnosed with cancer. She said, This may be the last big thing that I do, but I will continue doing Kezia's kindness for as long as I can. This is something to leave behind and feel proud of, as it is very special to have. I cannot think of anything that would bring a smile more than this park now, especially for this area. It is beautiful, it is everything I wanted it to be, and it will last for a while, where children can play on it over time, and that is the most important thing. I stood up on the equipment earlier as I had to stand there like she would, with her arms back like she was on top of the world, and that is the feeling I want the children to have. They can run around and have something extra to play with and to escape the pressures of life and have fun. Hello, this is an article from the Isle of Wight Radio, read by Sue. Islanders urge to help tackle nerdor pollution by local community action group. Planet Aware, PA, a local voluntary community action group based on the Isle of Wight, is urging Islanders to take a stand against plastic pellet pollution. The appeal comes after a well-attended presentation on the subject took place on Friday, January the 26th at the Seeley Hall in Brook and Compton Bay. This was in partnership with Environmental Consult and Pollution Response Organisation Oracle Environmental Experts, or OEE. The aims were to raise awareness on nerdal pollution, to gain support from local and national government, to draw attention to ways of tackling this unrelenting issue to ensure plastic pellet pollution is on the Isle of Wight and UK agenda. Isle of Wight MP Bob Seeley, alongside representatives from organisations such as the National Trust, Crown Estates, Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, Visit Isle of Wight, Hampshire and Isle of Wight Wildlife Trust, and local councillors and parliamentary candidates from all parties participated in this initiative. The PA team said, 
We are pleased our island MP Bob Seeley was able to join the group at the beach after the presentation. As many people, he was unaware of the number of pellets on our beaches and shocked by how endemic they were. He has committed to raising questions in Parliament about the issue. Nurdles are lentil-sized plastic pellets, on average two millimetres in diameter, that are manufactured to produce everyday plastic products. They are transported all over the world. However, sadly, container ship spills and poor handling practices along the supply chain result in frequent losses to the environment, including our ocean and shores. Presentations were given by PA volunteers, Sarah Marshall and Andrew Dean, who explained their concerns regarding the number of nurdles recovered over the past year from several Isle of Wight beaches, including popular island destinations. Planet Aware and OEE ask that if you see nurdles when on the beach, you can help by doing a nurdle survey. Hello, this is Steve reading a story from Isle of Wight Radio, headlined Registration Opens for Walk the White 2024. Following a record-breaking 2023, registration for the award-winning Walk the White opened on Monday 29th of January. Last year, thousands of walkers raised a whopping £460,000 for Mount Batten, the most ever, helping the charity deliver care to over 2,000 people across all of its services for 16 days. Its success helped Walk the White win Best Island Event at the 2023 Red Funnel Awards, and now Mountbatten is inviting the community to do it all again on Sunday 12th of May. Walk the White 2023 was a record-breaker for Mountbatten, some £130,000 more than it has raised before, said Nigel Hartley, the Mountbatten CEO. Somehow, thank you does not seem enough for what you all achieved. That sort of money makes a huge difference to so many people on the island. So how do we top that in 2024? Well, I'm not sure, but with our wonderful island community behind us, I'm confident we'll give it a good go. So please, sign up. Sponsored by Red Funnel, Walk the White is an epic walk across the beautiful Isle of Wight countryside, and offers multiple route options to suit all ages and abilities. It is considered the largest walking event of its kind in Europe. For 26.5 miles of glorious Isle of Wight scenery, there is the full walk between Bembridge and the Needles. For something more manageable, there are two half walks, 12.5 or 14 miles, or the wheelchair-accessible, pushchair-friendly flat walk of 8 miles, between Sandown and Shide. Once again, Mountbatten will be rewarding its top fundraisers in 2024. Walkers who raise more than £500 by the 12th of April will receive a special keepsake and be invited into the hospice for a VIP Walk the White reception ahead of the event. To register for Walk the White 2024, head to the website mountbatten.org.uk. The school's Walk the White registration will open at the beginning of March. Isle of Wight car parking charges increase approved from the Isle of Wight radio read by Lee. 
Parking charges on the Isle of Wight will rise again in the coming months. The move was approved by the Isle of Wight Council last week ahead of its final budget set in process in February. It is the third time in three years that prices have been hiked by the authority to generate additional income. The new charges will come into force from April and see prices increase by 10 pence an hour. Isle of Wight councillors do have the right to call in or effectively challenge the decision that was made pausing their implementation, but must do so before February the 1st. When the increase is enforced, it will mean parking for up to an hour on some island streets could cost you £2.45 or £4.90 for up to two hours. In a long-stay car park, parking for up to two hours could cost £3.80. The council has agreed to increase the charges for some residential and tourist parking permits. The price of an all-island permit, which allows people to park for 24 hours in most of the council's long-stay car parks, will increase by 20%. It will increase the cost of the permit from £648 a year to nearly £780 per year. The council believes it could make another £431,867 a year from the increased prices. The The authority has also agreed to introduce parking charges on Union Street in Newport, which currently allows motorists to park for a free for an hour. The council says it has brought in the charges to ensure a consistent approach with parking fees, as you may have to as you may have to pay to park in the neighbouring New Street. The authority says it is required to generate additional income in 24-25 and the parking costs would help meet inflationary costs, cover the cost of enforcement and the maintenance of parking equipment. Without the increases, the council has warned it would need to make further reductions across its highways and transport activities. Hello, this is an article from the Isle of Wight Radio read by Sue. Isle of Wight's budget postponement announced due to uncertainty. The Isle of Wight Council has released a statement regarding its 24-25 budget. Councillor Phil Jordan, leader of the Isle of Wight Council, said, Due to a number of fundamental variables and uncertainties in funding that are impacting the finalisation of the Council's budget, we have agreed to postpone the budget agenda item for next week's cabinet meeting. Our intention is to hold a single item extraordinary cabinet meeting the week following to consider the 2024-2025 budget. There have been suggestions that government will add a further 3 million of funding to the settlement figure in addition to a share of the 500 million pounds set aside nationally for social care service delivering funding. We have no details on the amount of the island, but our best estimate is around 1.5 million. In terms of the potential adding funding of 3 million, again, we have no idea at this stage as to potential conditions attached to the extra money, but assume they will come, if at all, with the final funding settlement announcement. I am sure residents will understand the position we have been placed in and, as a result, have forced upon us extraordinary circumstances which we have to manage. I would like to assure our island community that properly formed council budget will emerge and be recommended to full council at the appropriate time. Hi, this is Steve reading a story from Isle of Wight Radio, headlined No Cases of Measles Recorded on Isle of Wight Despite National Incident Being Declared. No cases of measles have been recorded on the Isle of Wight amid National Health Agency warnings about outbreaks. 
It comes as the UK Health Security Agency, that's the UK HSA, declared a national incident as cases rise across the country and is paired with a low uptake of the measles, mumps and rubella, that's the MMR, vaccine. An Isle of Wight Council spokesperson has confirmed the island is not seeing the established community transmission of measles. Latest figures show, as of January 21st, the UK HSA has not been notified of any measles cases on the island. Along with the NHS and the UK HSA, the island's Public Health Director Simon Bryant is encouraging islanders to check they and their children have had two doses of the MMR vaccine. The council spokesperson said it is a safe and effective way of protecting against the infections. Recent figures from the NHS show that, as of March 2023, 85.5% of the 1,205-year-olds on the island had had both doses of the MMR vaccine. This is compared to a national average of 84.5%. The uptake of the MMR vaccine has fallen from the rates on the previous year when 89.3% of five-year-old islanders had had two doses and 85.7% nationally. The Isle of Wight Council spokesperson said, It is important for parents to take up the offer of the MMR vaccine for their children when offered at one-year-old and as a preschool booster at three years, four months of age. If children and young adults have missed these vaccinations in the past, it is important to take up the vaccine now from GPs, particularly in light of the recent cases. They said parents can check their child's red book to see if they've received MMR vaccinations, or it can be discussed with your GP surgery if you're unsure. Most healthy adults will have developed some immunity to measles, but can still receive two doses of the vaccine from their GP too, the spokesperson said. According to the NHS, measles can spread very easily, and usually starts with cold-like symptoms, followed by a rash a few days later. Some may get small spots in their mouth. More information and advice can be found on the NHS.uk website. Future of school transport under review as Council launches consultation from the Island Echo read by Lee. The Isle of Wight Council has launched a consultation on proposed changes to the school transport policy, which could see free transport for those in years 10 and 11 scrapped, changes for those with special educational needs and a £180 hike in spare seat contributory payments by parents. The Council currently arranges daily transport to school for over 1,650 children and young people. Of these, around 1,100 attend mainstream school places and more than 350 attend places that provide for their special educational needs and disabilities, known as SEND. The local authority is required by law to provide free of charge school transport to all children and young people of compulsory school age that meet the, meet the nationally set distance and statutory eligibility criteria stipulated by the Department for Education, or the DFE, but the council is now looking into whether it can tighten up its policy to more closely align with the statutory guidance. 
Parents who are required to make a financial contribution towards discretionary school transport arrangements will see their contributions hiked in line with inflation from September 2024, with inflation-linked increases also being applied in future years. At the moment, the Council wants to increase the payment from £390 to £570 per year for these spare seats. There are also around 14 children on the island who cost the Isle of Wight Council some £20,000 a year to get to and from school. Parents of these children are now going to be asked to contribute £640 if their child has to travel less than five miles to school and £890 if they travel between five and seven and a half miles. A payment of £1,250 will be required from parents of those children who travel between seven and a half and ten miles and £1,420 if the journey is more than ten miles. The proposals in the consultation include for transport budgets or PTB to be available to families where a child or young person's needs or circumstances mean that suitable transport is difficult to find or not available at all in the local operator market. Development and delivery of an independent travel training service for children and young people with SEND as they prepare for adulthood who may be capable of travelling independently to their place of education. The regular review of the provision of passenger assistance, this could mean the reduction or removal of such assistance, where parents are required to make a financial contribution towards discretionary school transport arrangements to increase this contribution in line with inflation, the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, from September 2024, with inflation-linked increases also being applied in future years. The rewording and updating of the Council's policy to ensure it reflects the latest Department for Education statutory guidance. In addition, the Council is also consulting in relation to post-16 travel arrangements, although there is no automatic entitlement to local authority-funded school or transport once a student is over the age of 16. Isle of Wight Council makes discretionary funding available in certain circumstances. The Council wants to remove the Year 10 and 11 discretionary entitlement, but any existing arrangements will remain unchanged and will run into the end of the agreed agreement. The consultations can be completed online at www.iow.gov.uk slash schools and education slash home to school transport slash schools transport consultations. For paper copies of the documentation or any queries about the consultation, email transport.info at iow.gov.uk with school transport policy consultation 2024 as a subject or call 01983-823-780. Paper consultation forms can be returned to County Hall. The consultation closes on Wednesday the 13th of March 2024 and if approved any changes to the policy will be applied to new applications for transport from September 2024. Hello this is an article from the Isle of Wight Echo read by Sue. No need to see a GP for seven common conditions as pharmacies expand services. Patients across the Isle of Wight can now get treatment for seven common conditions at their high street pharmacy without needing to see a GP. 
as part of a major transformation in the way the NHS delivers care. More than 9 in 10 community pharmacies in the southeast, over 1,381 in total, will be offering the groundbreaking initiative, with the health service making it easier and more convenient for people to access care. Unfortunately, a list of participating pharmacies has not yet been made available. Highly trained pharmacists will be able to assess and treat patients for sinusitis, sore throat, earache, infected insect bite, impetigo, shingles and uncomplicated urinary tract infections in women under the age of 65 without the need for an appointment or prescription. Alison Taylor, NHS England South East Medical Director, says, Today sees the continued expansion of the role of community pharmacies in the South East, providing quicker and easier access to healthcare on the high street, making it as easy as possible for people to get the help they need. This is great news for patients. From today, you can pop into one of the more 10,000 high street pharmacies in England to get a consultation on seven common conditions, including earache, a sore throat or sinusitis, at a convenient time, with many pharmacies open late into the evening, a great help for all of us leading increasingly busy lives. It builds on the successful expansion of the contraceptive pill service in December 2023, with one in four pharmacies, 300 in the southeast, now offering women the chance to get supply of oral contraception over the counter from their pharmacy without needing to first see their GP. In future, the NHS expects almost half a million women a year to receive their contraception from their high street pharmacist. The major expansion of pharmacy services will give the public more choice in where and how they access care, aiming to free up 10 million GP appointments for a year nationally. Hi, this is Steve reading a story from the Island Echo, headlined Planning Inspectorate Overturn Council's Decision on Extra Caravans in Gurnard. Sunnycourt Caravan Park in Gurnard will be allowed to extend after all nearly two years after it was first denied. It comes as a government watchdog overturned the Isle of Wight Council's decision to refuse permission. Owner Lynn Wildy was looking to add five new caravans to the park in Gurnard on a currently grassed area, but was denied the extension from 21 to 26 units in 2022. The Isle of Wight Council refused the application a couple of months after submission, saying it would have an adverse impact on neighbours along Rue Street and the character and appearance of the area. Fears had been raised at the time by neighbours, saying among other things it was an overdevelopment and it would impact negatively on wildlife. However, on Mrs Wildy's appeal of the Council's decision, the Government's Planning Inspectorate has recently agreed to the Caravan Park's extension with 12 conditions. One of the conditions is that the new holiday units cannot be used for anything other than as holiday accommodation. Another is that if the units are no longer required, they should be permanently removed from the site. Overall, 
The planning inspectorate said the scale of the proposed development would be subservient to the existing caravan park. It says the new units are modest in size and have a simple design, looking the same as the current caravans on the site. The inspectorate said the caravans being on site would not be prominent in the landscape or urbanise the area. Public views of the new units would virtually be hidden, it said, by both the existing greenery and the adjoining properties facing onto Rue Street. The government body said, although there is a likelihood of increased noise and disturbance from holidaymakers, it would be unlikely to create such an unacceptable level which would be harmful to the living conditions of neighbours. The internal layout of the caravan park will be reconfigured to make way for the new units and a road loop created to allow bigger vehicles to get around the site. Light at the end of the tunnel. Revised plans to be submitted for Newport's new ground. From the Island Echo, read by Susan. Newport Isle of Wight Football Club have made a welcome announcement that updated plans are to be submitted for their new ground on the racecourse in Whippingham despite challenging economic conditions. The County Town Club believe Isle of Wight Council approval for the plans will take no longer than eight weeks and as soon as council approval has been given, South Coast Leisure will be in a position to appoint contractors. The pitch itself won't change from the original plans, ensuring it meets the Football's Association ground grading requirements. Newport are now in their fifth year of ground sharing after leaving St George's Park, lodging at East Cows Vicks Beatrice Avenue, home for two years before moving to Ride St Smallbrook Stadium, then returning to Beatrice Avenue this season. It has now been over six years since Island Echo first reported that Newport would be relocating to Whippingham back in 2017. The County Town Club have previously predicted that work on the new ground would begin in 2019, 2020 and 2021. Further predictions were made in September 22 and March 2023. Will the new ground finally happen this time round? The revised plans for Whippingham, which are yet to be formally submitted, will see the size of the clubhouse reduced from a two-storey building to just a single storey. This will reduce building costs and time, as well as being less visually intrusive to the club's new neighbours on East Cows Road. There will be 150 seats in total in two stands with allocated directors and press seats. Steve Rackett, Port Supporters Trust Chairman, said, There is at last some movement in terms of the development at the racecourse. South Coast Leisure are in the process of submitting an amendment to the application for the clubhouse and seating area in the new ground. The clubhouse will now be a single-storied but slightly larger footprint and we at the Trust are fully supportive of this arrangement. It has two advantages. Without the need for a lift to the first floor, which would have been a legal requirement in a new build, and our maintenance costs will be lower. It will be also significantly less complicated construction with a much swifter build time and the need for a quick conclusion of the project is something John Davis, club chairman, and I have impressed on SCL in the last few months. 
With the ground already having planning permission and the amendment having much reduced height profile, the likely approval from the council should take around eight weeks and then SCL will be in a position to appoint contractors. The lessons of St George's Park are that we don't want to have a building that we will require significant upkeep in the future, leading to a financial drain that puts the club at risk again. The reduced height of the building will also be less visually intrusive to our neighbours on East Cows Road and we want a positive relationship with them. Manager Steve Broham has welcomed the news, saying, I have just heard that a major announcement has just been made that the new ground is going ahead, which is heartening for our loyal squad, who have signed with us for the past few years ground-sharing since leaving St George's Park. In a statement, South Coast Leisure has told Island Echo, In what remain challenging economic conditions... South Coast Leisure is continuing to work hard to deliver the new home for Newport Football Club. As part of that, we have developed new plans for the clubhouse element of the proposed new ground at the racecourse. The club has been involved in developing these plans and officials are supportive of the proposal. While preserving all the amenities of the original plan and meeting the Football Association's ground grading requirements, the new design would be built over a single storey. This will reduce the visual impact of the scheme, make the build more straightforward to build and, crucially, will make it easier and cheaper for the club to operate and maintain it. We will continue to keep the club and the wider community informed of developments regarding the new stadium. Questions over coroner's lack of inquest remain as families wait for increases. From the Island Echo, read by Susan. Questions are once again being asked of the coroner for the Isle of Wight, Caroline Summerer, as the backlog of inquests waiting to be heard builds, but she has refused to provide answers. As reported by Island Echo back in July, bereaved families are waiting on average 63 weeks for an inquest, more than double the average across England and Wales and it is feared that numbers are getting bigger. A Freedom of Information request was recently sent to the coroner through the BBC Local Democracy Reporting Scheme, requesting information above about the number of closed and open inquests between 2018 and 2023. However, it was made clear by Mrs Summerer that the coroner is not a public authority, so she was not required to supply the information and would not do so. It comes as an absence of inquest being how becomes all the more apparent. No inquests were listed in December and January, save for two inquests held in writing. In 2022, Section 9C inquests were introduced, which allowed some proceedings that are straightforward and uncontentious to be held in writing. Island Echo is currently waiting on more than 30 inquests to be held for incidents covered in recent years, which all await an outcome. At the end of 2022, 264 inquests were still open, leaving families waiting for the hearing, compared to 188 in 2021, 195 in 2020, and 107 in 2019. 
In 2022, a total of 36 inquests were still ongoing two years after the procedures were opened, more than double those in 2021, and a considerable increase on six in 2020 and one in 2019. Before the COVID pandemic, the average wait for an inquest was 35 weeks, but that grew to 40 weeks in 2020, 56 weeks in 2021 and 63 weeks in 2022. In 2022, Mrs Summeray said that the Isle of Wight Council had endeavoured to recruit additional staff to support the service and hoped that an assistant coroner would be appointed so she could run two courts to hear outstanding inquest. Almost two years on and that still just hasn't happened. A spokesman for the Isle of Wight Council, which funds the coroner's service, told Island Echo back in July, The senior coroner and the council have been ongoing discussions about the coroner's service requirements, which include funding, adequate courtroom provision and personnel generally, in the light of the substantial increase in complex coronal work on the island, which has impacted the delivery of the service. The questions the coroner declined to answer this month were 1. How many inquests have been closed, excluding Section 9C inquest, by the Isle of Wight coroner in the following years? 2018, 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022 and 2023. Question 2. How many Section 9C inquests have been closed by the Isle of Wight coroner in 2022 and 2023. And finally, number three, how many open inquests does the Isle of Wight coroner currently have? Of those, how many of the deaths are one year old, two years old, three years old, four years old, five years old and more? This is the second part of the talking news read by John and Francis. We begin with more news items taken from the County Press and The Observer. Teenagers' Festival Terror Plot Fantasy The month-long trial of an island teenager accused of terrorism offences in 2022, which included plans to attack the Isle of Wight Festival, will soon reach a conclusion. The boy, appearing before a jury at Kingston Crown Court, denies three counts of the dissemination of a terrorist publication, engaging in conduct in the preparation of terrorist acts and possession of a bladed article in public. Yesterday, Thursday, Rosano Scamadella, defending, drew the jury's attention to the defendant's age, condition, education and personal characteristics. Mr Scamadella said it was inevitable members of the jury would disapprove of lots of the things the 16-year-old had done, regardless of the motive or intention. The court heard the boy's actions were not disputed, but they must be accompanied by a criminal mindset for conviction. Watching videos of beheadings is awful, said Mr Scamadella, and discussing violent, even lethal attacks at public events is shameful, but the actions themselves are insufficient. What is in dispute is what was in his head, his mental state and his intention. 
Mr. Scamardella said the defendant's childhood was blighted by two significant events, including his autism diagnosis. Mr. Scamardella touched on the typical characteristics of autism and how it affects the way people think, their social interactions and their problems starting and maintaining friendships. He said it was very relevant when considering his behaviour, impacting his ability to form balanced judgments and make considered decisions. He said the defendant exhibited preoccupations and because he had been rejected by his school peers, he sought connections online rather than in the flesh. Mr Scamadella told members of the jury the defendant decided upon Islam as his religion of choice and its structure, rigidity, routine and pattern would have been appealing to him. He said he became utterly fascinated by it. His interest intensified and he wanted to become the perfect Muslim. Mr Scamadella said internet research gave him access to friends and connections, something he couldn't get anywhere else. He said the defendant had no ability to properly regulate his thinking, didn't know where the boundaries were, and went too far. The court heard he loved to shock people, to be controversial, and to exaggerate about things he had done, long before his involvement with the Muslim faith. He told multiple people he carried a knife for safety. He said he feared an attack, imminent or at any time, and he had been abused and threatened by someone with a blade in the past. To gain notoriety, this insecure 15-year-old, desperate for friends and validation, purported to support ISIS and extreme methods, and it fed his need for connections and popularity, said Mr Scamadella. The defendant even contacted the police to ask if what he was doing was illegal, putting himself squarely on their radar, and Mr Scamadella questioned the purpose of that correspondence if he had genuine intentions of committing an act of terrorism. Mr Scamadella said the defendant harboured no intention to launch a terror attack at the Isle of Wight Festival. He said it was hollow, ludicrous boasting about something he wouldn't know where to start with, or talk, or to shock. A boy who cannot drive without a car, planning to kill him, hundreds of people driving into them at a music festival, about as far-fetched and unrealistic as it is possible to be, said Mr Scarmadella. He added, the entire thing is the stuff of fantasy. The trial continues. Budget Uncertainties Discussion about the Isle of Wight Council's budget, due to take place next Thursday evening, February the 8th, has been postponed due to uncertainty about what funding the Council is to receive. Council leader Phil Jordan said, due to a number of fundamental variables and uncertainties in funding that are impacting the finalisation of the Council's budget, 
We have agreed to postpone the budget agenda item from next week's Cabinet meeting. Our intention is to hold a single item, extraordinary meeting, the following week to consider the 2024-25 budget. There have been suggestions that government will add a further £3 million of funding to the settlement figure, in addition to a share of £500 million set aside nationally for social care service delivery funding. We have no details on the amount of that for the island, but our best estimate is around £1.5 million. In terms of the potential added funding of £3 million, again, we have no idea at this stage as to potential conditions attached to the extra money, but assume they will come, if at all, with the final funding settlement announcements. I am sure residents will understand the extraordinary circumstances which we have to manage. I would like to assure our island community that a properly formed council budget will emerge and be recommended to full council at the appropriate time. Tourism Boss Upbeat on Isle of Wight by Oliver Dyer The boss of Visit England has said he is confident the tourism industry is, quote, turning the tide and has called on Isle of Wight businesses to work together. Andrew Stokes, the director of the National Tourism Organisation, was on the island for Visit Isle of Wight's Visitor Economy Conference yesterday, Thursday. He told the county press the industry is starting to bounce back after a few challenging years, and he believes there are real opportunities for the island going forward. He said, I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy, and there are some wonderful benefits to being an island. I suppose some people will think there are challenges around transport and getting to and from, but I think there are very good and important transport infrastructures in place. In a message to island businesses, he said, we've had some really challenging years. The answer has to be working in partnership and about seeing how they can work together and with a joined-up approach, I'm confident the industry bounces back. The conference at Medina Theatre was held for tourism-related businesses that pay the white BID or are voluntary contributors to the island's destination marketing organisation. Visit Isle of Wight's managing director, Will Miles, took to the stage to discuss how the tourism board can increase the number of visitors to the island and what local businesses can do to help. Although tourism on the island has yet to return to pre-Covid levels, he said he is positive that will change. Speaking ahead of the conference, he said, We're on that journey into 2024. It's not going to be easy. The Isle of Wight has a lot to offer. Getting on that ferry at Portsmouth, Lymington or Southampton, your holiday starts as soon as you step on board, and it's all part of it. One thing I will say is, 
No passport required. You don't have to be stood in a departure lounge. It's a positive thing and we're ready to welcome visitors back into 2024. Guests saw five sessions across the day from speakers who are experts in their field, followed by a question and answer. Choir sang for St Mary's Stroke Unit. Members of the New Church Male Voice Choir recently presented a cheque for £1,400 to Vicky Owen, clinical lead, and Janine Johnson, consultant stroke nurse for the stroke unit at St Mary's Hospital. The sum was raised from audiences at the choir's concerts throughout 2023. Bob Cooper, speaking on behalf of the choir, said, The men love singing and bringing pleasure to island audiences at our concerts. This presentation gives us the pleasure of knowing that the wonderful work of the Stroke Unit staff will be made a little easier with this addition to their funds. Flipped car with kids on board. A father who crashed his BMW and flipped it onto its roof while driving his children home was more than twice over the drink-drive limit. Dolan Maybe of Swanmore Road Ride attended the Isle of Wight Magistrates Court on January 26 for sentencing after previously pleading guilty to drink driving. Liz Miller, prosecuting, said the 49-year-old was taking his children from Newport to Ride on October 21, 2023. Miss Miller said Maybe clipped the verge on Comley Road in Haven Street which sent the car across the road on an S-bend before flipping onto its roof. Police said Maybe was slurring his words and smelled of liquor. A blood test indicated he had 203 milligrams of alcohol in 100 millilitres of blood when the legal limit is 80. Maybe was taken to hospital alongside his teenage children. Maybe got a 22-month driving ban, a 12-month community order and 180 hours of unpaid work. Smoking row kicks off on bus. A man was dragged off a bus by Good Samaritan passengers after an alleged assault on two men late last Friday night. Hampshire and Isle of Wight Constabulary has confirmed a Salisbury man was arrested in connection with the incident and has since been released under investigation. Police boarded a Southern Vectors bus which had stopped at Furlongs, Newport. Officers were called at 11.47pm to reports of an assault on a double-decker. It was reported one man attacked two other men who sustained minor injuries, police said. An eyewitness on board the bus told the county press passengers got together to drag the man off. They said officers then boarded and took a statement from passengers. In a statement, Dave Miller, Southern Vectis Assistant Operations Manager, said there was an incident when a passenger who was smoking refused to leave the bus. The police were called and the individual was arrested. 
We are helping the police as they carry out their investigation. A spokesperson for the police force confirmed a 39-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of assault. He has been released under investigation while inquiries continue. Speeding e-scooter seized. An e-scooter rider has been summoned to court for driving with no insurance and no licence. Police said an e-scooter was being used on the wrong side of the road and on the pavement at speed. They said it happened at night and was an accident waiting to happen. Sergeant Radford said the scooter has been seized, the owner will not see it again and will face a court summons for various offences. Officers stopped a 25-year-old man from Shanklin in St Paul's Crescent at 11.57pm on Friday, January 26. A court summons was issued and no arrests were made. Police said the offence will be dealt with under the single justice procedure. Although the government is looking into legalising private e-scooters, under current UK law it is illegal to use them on public roads or pavements. They can only be used on private land with the owner's permission. On the island, rented barrel e-scooters can be used on roads, but the rider must have a valid driving licence or provisional licence and be aged 16 or older. White link changes at Portsmouth. A ferry operator has announced changes to its boarding process to allow work to be carried out at Portsmouth Harbour. Essential maintenance of the gangway at White Link's Portsmouth Harbour Fastcat port will see the boarding and discharging of the vessels change for three weeks. The change will be in place between Tuesday, February the 20th and Tuesday, March the 5th. There will be no changes at Ride Pierhead during this period. All customers will board from the Portsmouth Harbour's south end berth which includes a steep slope and a small number of steps. Passengers using the ferry during the first three months of 2022 will remember using the outdoor route during White Link's terminal upgrade. The ferry operator is advising customers with wheelchairs, mobility scooters, prams and heavy luggage to use its car ferry service from Fishbourne to Portsmouth or travel with hover travel between Ride and Southsea. White Link tickets, including Multilink and season ticket passes, will be accepted on all hover travel services, including the hover bus from Southsea to Portsmouth Hard. Cycle Tour Cost Recoup Doubts Over Liquidation The organisation behind the Tour of Britain has gone into liquidation, throwing into question whether the Isle of Wight Council will be able to recoup any money spent. The Council is seeking legal advice. The event's last-minute cancellation in 2022 set the authority back £350,000 following the death of Queen Elizabeth. 
The September event, the final leg of the tour, was pulled with just two days' notice. To host it, the Isle of Wight Council had to pay £250,000. The Isle of Wight Council paid 100000 to cover road closure orders, marketing and public relations. Although some fees were recouped, organiser Sweet Spot has since entered liquidation and not all the money has been recovered. It was thought the island would make around four million by hosting the Tour of Britain. In a contract between the Isle of Wight Council and Sweet Spot, in the case of Force Majeure, the council would be entitled to a refund of the host venue fees after costs had been deducted. An Isle of Wight Council spokesperson said, The authority is taking legal advice on seeking to recover costs. As this is now potentially a legal matter, it would not be appropriate to comment further. The administrators have been contacted for a statement. Row breaks out over funding. Extra funding secured for the Isle of Wight is not enough and wasn't thanks to the island's MP, the council leader has said. While Bob Seeley says he has delivered a better settlement and is always fighting to get the island the best deal. Councillor Phil Jordan, Isle of Wight council leader and part of the Alliance administration, said the £4 million of extra funding wasn't secured by Conservative Bob Seeley. Councillor Jordan said the uplift, in any case not determined until next month, was the result of work by council senior officers, including the S151 financial officer. He said they spent hundreds of hours of work time, produced copious documents, written supporting letters and emails, had meetings and engaged with the government department in providing data and evidence to support and demonstrate the extra costs involved in delivering services on our island as opposed to the same service delivery on the mainland. Council officers, through the chief executive, overseen by the chief financial officer, have been in ongoing dialogue and responding to and answering repeated questions from government, something Councillor Jordan explained in his monthly county press column recently. Councillor Jordan cited the council received a letter from the then Minister for Local Government, Lee Rowley, thanking the Council for the process, engagement and work put in, confirming that he accepted the island had a case for claiming additional costs. However, last week, when it seemed the island would only receive £1 million, Mr Seeley announced there would be an extra £3 million on top. The MP said, When I became MP, I pledged to get a better funding settlement. That's what I, working with others, have delivered. I am glad that we've been able to secure additional funds for the Council. This followed my lobbying the Prime Minister and other senior ministers in the past week.
the £4 million per year should now be viewed as the new benchmark. The £4 million a year equates to £16 million over a council term. Clearly, I will try to add to that figure in future settlements. I am always going to be campaigning for a better deal for the island. Thank you to council officers who helped make our case, and also the previous leader of the council, Laura Peachy Wilcox, who worked with me last summer on this. Councillor Jordan responded, I feel duty-bound to support and defend all our council team who have given so much time and effort to this process and who have been the real reason government could no longer ignore our pleas for additional funding. That the MP wants to claim he has secured the funding is a complete distortion of the facts. This task has been entirely a council-led process from start to finish. That said, this money is clearly not the so-called island deal. Council demonstrated to government that it would need between 10 million and 28 million of additional funding to simply balance up our inequality with the mainland. In the context that the council has made continuing cuts and cost savings of over 97 million since 2010, 3 million doesn't represent any such island deal and falls well short of expectation. East Cow's Pub to call last orders. A pub has announced it will be closing its doors for the final time later this year as its owner prepares to wave goodbye to the site after almost half a decade. The Victorian Tavern on Clarence Road is set to cease trading in May. Its kitchen will close at the end of February and the team are calling on patrons to continue to support the pub until the very end. After nearly five years here, it's with great sadness and a heavy heart that I have to announce we will be closing our doors for good, said a spokesman for the tavern team. We are immensely proud of what we have achieved in our time here, creating one of the best community pubs around. We would like to say a massive thank you to all our customers, those local and from afar. Thank you for continuously showing your loyalty and support to our little pub. Historic Expedition Journal goes to the Natural History Museum. A historic journal detailing an expedition to the Malay States has been donated to the Natural History Museum. The extensively illustrated journal was prepared in 1899-1900 by Dr Frank Laidlaw, who, at the age of 23, was appointed as zoologist on a scientific expedition to the area, which now forms part of Malaysia. For eight months, the team travelled by river and on foot through remote, unexplored jungle, gathering scientific data and specimens of birds, insects, snails and plant species. Laidlaw said, 
Our party constantly endured large land leeches, mosquitoes, giant centipedes, snakes and scorpions. We were very weary after eight months, but thrilled with the natural environment and our finds. The jungle people who acted as our guides were charming and greatly assisted our research. The journal was the last remaining item of the Laidlaw archive held by Professor Robin McInnes, stepson of Dr Eric Laidlaw, Frank Laidlaw's son and former medical superintendent at the Royal National Hospital in Steep Hill. The album was presented by Robin and his grandson, Michael Preston, to Andrea Hart, head of special collections and archives at the museum who said she was delighted to receive it. The Natural History Museum already holds a substantial Laidlaw archive, and this latest edition will be scanned and made available online. A detailed account of the Laidlaw and McInnes families can be found in Furthest South from the Scottish Borders to the Isle of Wight, written by Robin and published in 2021. He will be giving an illustrated presentation of the book at a Sicilian supper evening to be held at Café Isola in Newport in September. Tough times as women's team folds. One of the island's most prominent women's football club has folded. Cow Sports ladies made the announcement on Wednesday after what was described as a tough period for the Island Club, who were playing in Division 2 of the Hampshire Women's League. They had suffered a number of heavy defeats before a long string of postponements. In a statement on their Facebook page, they posted, It's with a heavy heart we have to announce this, but Cowes Sport Ladies Football Club are having to pull out of the league fold as a club. We can't thank the ladies enough for their continued efforts through this tough period and to all the staff and volunteers for all your help. Finally, a massive thank you to all the ladies who have played for Cows throughout the years. We wish everyone the best. Cows Sports Ladies, established as Cows Ladies in January 2017, joined the Yachtsman in 2020 to help develop women's football on Ireland. The club started out playing in public and community pitches in the town. A look back in time. The Isle of Wight Observer, published on the 4th of February, 1888, recounts a story about a stable boy who goes to great lengths to rescue two horses and gives details about a ship sinking off the island's south coast. A feat such as that performed by a stable boy and two thoroughbred horses is decidedly singular. The horses between Portsmouth and Ryde broke away from the boy's care and swam out to sea a mile They were overtaken, however, by a boat, and then the plucky lad jumped on the back of one and got fast hold of the bridle of the other. Under his guidance, both horses returned safe to land. 
that boy is of the right sort. He will do something bigger than lead horses. Blackgang. The recent wreck. The hull of the wrecked Norwegian three-masted brigantine Kongeek Holmstrad, which came ashore at the Blackgang Chine on the night of the 20th of January, floated off on the flood tide on Saturday night and came up channel a short distance off the shore as far as Steep Hill Cove. Several fishermen of the cove put off in their boats and towed the wreck until it grounded in Pelham Bay. When seeing they could not secure it, they cut adrift the masts and brought them ashore. Subsequently, the wreck was carried out to sea by the tide, the efforts of the fishermen to keep it back without avail. The vessel, which has one side carried away, was on her beam ends, very much down in the bow, which was entirely submerged. My view, catch a bargain at this hidden gem by Imogen Chew. As most of you will know, moving house is a long and expensive affair, especially so if, like me, you've just bought your first home. You have no furniture, rugs or appliances to your name, so the list of things you need to buy seems to expand even as you tick them off. Up until this point, my husband and I have lived at the whim of the taste of whichever landlord we happen to be renting from. I don't miss the matching dark purple rug, curtains and sofa in the last place. While we were excited to finally be kitting out our own place, our thrill was somewhat dampened by the growing price tag. That was until, however, my nan let me in on a little secret. Storeroom 2010 in Cowes. She had found herself a bargain or two there, she said and my cousin had bought much of the furniture he needed for his first home there, too. Of course, as Nans usually are, she was right, and what started as a place for me to find some cheap furniture quickly turned into me shouting from the rooftops about this island gem of a charity. So I thought it was worth telling you all about it, too. For those of you who don't know, the storeroom is a large warehouse based in Cow's Industrial Estate, opposite Aldi. It is full to the brim of second-hand furniture, from sofas to bookshelves, dining tables and trinkets. Its mission is to use items donated by island residents to be able to offer furniture at competitive prices for those who are less fortunate and may not be able to afford the bits they need to make their living space a home. The prices are already incredibly reasonable. We bought a TV stand there for £16, but customers in need can be referred to the storeroom and benefit from a further discount. The storeroom also collects donations of household items for free, limiting the amount going to landfill or simply being trashed on the side of the road. This naturally encourages islanders to reuse and lengthen an item's lifespan, reducing waste and helping the island become more sustainable. On top of this, it has a great employment ethos. 
it aims to help people from a variety of backgrounds, including those with learning difficulties or disabilities, find a route to employment. This includes those in the island probation service who are required to work unpaid hours. Since it opened in 2010, the experience, social interaction and confidence gained from working at the storeroom has helped more than 50 people move from a volunteer position at the charity into paid work. So, whether you are looking to get rid of some unwanted furniture, searching for a bargain, or simply want to support a wonderful island initiative, think about the storeroom. Just last week, I saw a groovy-looking electric piano organ for £40. If I had an inch of house left to spare, it would have been mine. Nigel Hartley, CEO of Mountbatten. Mountbatten has been in the news recently around our funding, our relationship with the NHS and what it all means for us. I am very grateful to the Isle of Wight Observer for enabling me to use this column to explain what's happening in more detail. Mountbatten has two income streams. The first is fundraising from the local community. This is alive, well and very healthy as our wonderful island community are extraordinary in their support for us. Walk the White raised £460,000 last year, much more than in the past. We have a dedicated team working with supporters to keep fundraising income buoyant. We remain truly grateful to our community who continually get behind us and we never take that for granted. Essentially, income from fundraising pays for two-thirds of all Mountbatten's specialist end-of-life care services, which equate to around £7 million a year. We are currently supporting around 2,500 people on the island in any one day. We don't enjoy having to keep asking our community to support us, but we have no choice. We are very grateful to everyone for their ongoing commitment to helping Mountbatten. The second key funding stream comes from the NHS. Mountbatten has a contract with the local NHS and Mountbatten Isle of Wight receives £3.5 million a year from them to run specialist end-of-life care services on the island. We have always had very good relationships with our local NHS commissioners. The NHS income pays for one-third of Mountbatten's services. Mountbatten reports to the NHS on the success of this contract and what we achieve is impressive. Every year costs rise by around 8%, pay awards, cost of living, energy bills and so on. The NHS this year will not pay any uplift on the £3.5 million, leaving that funding stream with a gap of £350,000 for the island's only hospice. The all-party parliamentary group for hospice and end-of-life care report, which was published this month, calls for NHS integrated care boards to pass on the uplift to hospices 
that they are entitled to. I do understand that money needs to be saved within the health and social care system for all kinds of reasons. However, at the end of such fund-cutting decisions are the people we care for and about, our families, our friends, our neighbours, all of us. Care is not a commodity and we will all deserve Mountbatten's devastating duo of expertise and kindness when the time comes. I hope that whoever needs to listen to the recommendations in this report, things cannot continue as they are, and we must now advocate at every opportunity for what is right and proper. Together, we need to find our collective voice and influence so that any change that does happen will be for the good of everyone. We can no longer expect the public to fundraise in order to fill the increasing gaps in NHS funding left by inadequate annual uplifts and other potential cuts due to the need for cost savings. You can read the report at iow.life.org hospice report forthcoming productions at medina theatre the island the join the white strollers perform the fairest panto of them all snow white during february half term performances are on saturday the 10th and 17th of february at 2:30 and 7:30 p.m and on Sunday 11th of February at 2.30pm. Tickets cost £14 or £10 for the under-14s. The Royal Marines Band are performing on Thursday 22nd of February at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £23.50p. Money for Nothing, described as, quote, undoubtedly the best Dire Straits tribute in Europe, is on at the Medina Theatre on Saturday 24th of February at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £25. Jim Davison is swimming against the tide at the Medina on Saturday 2nd of March at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £28. Bingo That's Bonkers which is a mixture of bingo and added comedy music and, quote, even bigger balls, is on Friday the 8th of March at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £21. Shape of You, the music of Ed Sheeran, is on Saturday 9th of March at 7.30pm. Tickets cost £24.50p or £17 for the under-16s. Shanklin Theatre Saturday the 3rd of February Jason Fox Life at the Limit Saturday the 10th Jack Up Events presents A Night of a Thousand Freddies Sunday the 11th Spotlight Isle of Wight Limited presents Love is in the Air Thursday the 15th until Sunday the 18th on every evening, The Phantom of the Opera. Friday the 23rd of February, A History of British Mass Murderers. 
box office number is 01983-868-000. Lecture on Legendary Composer. The music and life of Johann Sebastian Bach is the subject of the next Isle of Wight Arts Society lecture. It will be held at Northwood House next Tuesday, February the 6th at 2pm. It will be delivered by musician and scholar Peter Medhurst. Music lovers generally regard J.S. Bach as the greatest of early 18th century composers. He is so important in the history of music that the Baroque period closes with his death in 1750. However, Bach is also one of the most challenging of composers and rarely reveals the subtleties of his music on first or even second hearing, often causing his listeners to feel distanced from some of the finer moments in his output. Using the 1746 Hausmann portrait of Bach as a constant point of reference, the lecture goes beneath the surface of the composer's music to decode aspects of his musical symbolism, tell the story of his life, and confirm his great importance in the history of music. There are places for visitors at all lectures for £10 per person, but booking must be made in advance. We now have readers' letters. In defence of Mayor Maybrick from John Matthews of Carisbrook. My friend David White is a distinguished local historian and normally his writings demand respect. I fear, however, he has uncharacteristically failed to fully research the Maybrick murder case of 1889 and has unnecessarily blackened the character of Michael Maybrick, five times mayor of Ryde, and whose funeral in 1913 is reputed to be the largest ever held on the Isle of Wight. In 1889, James Maybrick, a somewhat dissolute Liverpool cotton broker who was in the habit of imbibing drugs, including arsenic, died after a 15-day illness. Michael and his other brothers were present during the last few days and concerned with what they saw alerted alerted the police. Florence Maybrick, James's American widow, was subsequently charged with his murder. Michael Maybrick appeared as a prosecution witness and simply relayed the reasons why he and his brothers called in the police. Florence Maybrick was convicted and sentenced to death. Although he was convinced of her guilt, Michael opposed her hanging. There was much public disquiet about the conduct of the case by the trial judge, Mr Justice Stephen, who shortly afterwards was declared insane. Florence received a reprieve. She was released from prison in 1904 and returned to the United States, where she died in 1941. There was never any public criticism of Michael during or following the trial, and although the whole event was so embarrassing to him that he and his brother Edwin sought refuge away from the publicity at St Helens, he was soon able to resume his very successful career as a concert-based soloist on the London stage until his retirement in 1893. 
Michael cared for and arranged the upbringing of the two young children of James and Florence. His niece lived with him and his wife until she was married. Beyond Urgent, from Eric Hemming, former chair of Governors in Ireland Primary Schools. Bob Seeley highlights three key concerns for Isle of Wight schools, County Press, 26th of January, 24. The combined effect of two of them has a profound effect on school finances. The local authority reported last July that nearly £860,000 was missing from primary school budgets because of vacant reception places, 213. The reported number of children being educated at home was 591. Since these children do not appear on the school census, they are not included in numbers used for calculating financial allocations. So the island misses out on over £2.3 million per annum on this basis alone. The combined effect of the drop in birth rate and the increase in home education means HM Treasury benefits and island schools miss out on around £3 million, no doubt rising. Action to close some primary schools is way beyond urgent. Change is needed. From Peter Shreve, Assistant District Secretary, Treasurer and Press Officer, Isle of Wight National Education Union. I refer to the column, MP Concerned About Schools and Home Education Rates, County Press, 26th of January. He is worried a minority of children are not being taught and drifting into depression, isolation or worse. Indeed, it's a growing concern and not just within home education, not responding to families and young people in greatest need impacts on all aspects of education. There are many examples of where change is needed. Last week, Sutton Trust's analysis of early education policy changes. That government funding benefits higher earners and penalises lower earners is appalling. This month, the Island Schools Forum noted a number of schools expecting in-year deficits next year due to insufficient funding, recently discussed at a recent Head Teacher Forum meeting too. Last year, UKSA reported 32% of FE students accessing mental health support. 6% of young islanders have EHCPs. Others remain undiagnosed. Many remain on waiting lists for support. Government measures do little to reduce waiting times for specialist support and CAMHS appointments. A myriad of worsening issues negatively impact on all three points raised by Mr Seeley. Perhaps the answer is to put children's well-being at the heart of education. Increased opportunity for arts and sport. An end to the exam factories culture. Even before 2024, primary SATS pupils were already practising their exam technique. 
Many well-being and health issues need improvement, mental, dental, poverty. Despite increased awareness of all these issues, government has failed to make any real dent in combating concerns. In 2022, local authority spending on youth services in England had fallen by 62% since 2010-11. Mr Seeley finishes with Letting down children and parents and refusing to listen to teachers is not acceptable. If only he would take his own advice. Island Uplift from Bob Seeley, Isle of Wight MP. Thank you to the County Press for letting me respond to Mr Bromwich's recent letters. Mr Bromwich says, I failed to get an island deal due to a lack of extra funds for the council. Those extra funds were confirmed to me last week. The Isle of Wight will get an uplift in recognition of our island status, the first time this has happened. Minister Michael Gove stressed this point in his statement, which is now public. This is an important victory. It establishes an island uplift. I will try to increase it in future years. I have no doubt any future Labour government would take this away from us. Those extra funds are part of the larger picture of getting a better deal for the island. With others, I have worked to get a better deal across the board. We have £175 million of additional investment since I became MP, meaning better opportunities and better life chances for islanders. Times have been tough, but wages are now rising faster than inflation. However, it is important that as your MP, I go above and beyond to deliver for the islanders. Next, Mr Bromwich raised NHS dentists. The following is happening. There is a temporary increase in payments for island dental practices to increase NHS treatments. The NHS is recommissioning dental contracts on the island to increase NHS capacity. A mobile dental bus will soon be visiting to treat urgent cases. There is more to be done and I will always be doing my best. I enjoy hearing from Mr Bromwich. It was a pleasure to meet him recently when I was out canvassing. A 7.9% increase is a 7.9% increase from Lou Temel of Ride. On Tuesday, January 23rd, I attended a meeting of the Finance Committee of Ride Town Council. The meeting was chaired by Councillor Phil Jordan. As part of agenda business, the setting of the local precept charge for the financial year 24-25 was reviewed. After the usual spiel about any rise only being equivalent to a small number of pennies each week, the Chair recommend a minimum increase of 7.9% for local precept payers. Councillor Jordan went on to explain that this increase was not really a 7.9% increase, but only a 2.9% increase as underlying inflation was currently running at 5%. 
an interesting spin of Jordanomics as surprise surprise when the tax demand arrives the increase to be paid will be 7.9% however it is dressed up an increase of 7.9% is just that an increase of 7.9% apparently councillor Jordan does not see that in taking this action Ride Town Council is in fact fueling the very spiralling inflation that is causing so much hardship to families and communities. It's the narrative from Tim Giles in Ride. I refer to the article by Matthew Chatfield, 26th of January 24. I am quite happy with the content, save for the fourth paragraph that states... Whilst the extra rainfall caused by our changing climate, if you look at the records, we have had virtually the same annual rainfall after the last 10 years. The phrase climate change is continuously used flippantly in the media as it obviously fits the narrative generally. Would you please inform your reporters to check the facts before printing? Response by Matthew Chatfields. It's extraordinary to still have to argue this point. There are several sources to support the assertion that the UK's climate is changing, including higher precipitation. One I relied on was State of the UK Climate 2020, International Journal of Climatology. The authors state... 2020 was the UK's fifth wettest years in a series from 1862, with 116% of the 1981 to 2010 average and 122% of the 1961 to 1990 average rainfall. The most recent decade has been on average 4% wetter than 1981 to 2010 and 9% wetter than 1961 to 1990 for the UK overall. In the context of coastal landslips, the subject of the original quote, the total annual rainfall may not be as significant as the distribution, i.e. how long it rains for. This is also changing The same paper states, since 2009, the UK has had its wettest February, April, June, November, December on record in monthly series from 1862, that is, 5 of 12 months, as well as the wettest winter on record. That concludes this week's Talking News, so it's goodbye from me, John. And goodbye from me, Francis. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Good evening. Well, no prizes for guessing that tonight we're going to be featuring Doctor Who, a programme that falls into the small but select category of having celebrated its 60th anniversary. Rather like In Touch, except that even without the TARDIS, we got there first. Later, we're going to be looking at how accessibility forms part 
of the Whovian celebrations and talking to some of the people who made it happen. But first, alongside the big well-known names working in the field of blind welfare like RNIB and Guide Dogs is a cohort of small and some not so small local organisations which can sometimes go under the radar when it comes to offering on-the-spot help to visually impaired people. So what do these organisations do? How can you find them? And as we hear more and more about the financial struggles of local authorities who have responsibilities such as assessing care needs and providing rehabilitation services, where do these local organisations fit into the picture? 110 of them come under the umbrella of the membership organisation Visionary and I'm joined by their chief executive Fiona Sanford. Fiona, first of all, Visionary's mission statement is to develop a strong national network of sight loss organisations covering all parts of the UK. But I mean, how would you define their aims? Because that's a pretty broad remit. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for having me. Most of them will provide advice, information and guidance in some shape or form. As you said, some of them are large, some of them are small. Our job within Visionary is to help them be the best that they can be. So, I mean, how autonomous are these organisations? Do they have defined responsibilities or can they pretty much do what they like? In other words, can they identify a need and try and fill it? So that varies also. Some of these organisations provide commissioned and contracted services in partnership with health and social care in various shapes and forms. Some of them provide care homes, some of them provide education, uh, some of them have schools. So are they autonomous? Yes, within the regulatory framework in which they operate. Because some of them have really done quite what you might call big projects. I mean, some of them organised holidays, even foreign holidays. I mean, certainly in the past, I've known them do that. I don't know whether finance is, again, a bit tight for that kind of thing. They have a huge range of offerings. The holidays are maybe something that they did previously. I think what they do now is more cutting edge type of things that a lot of them provide tech services, a lot of them provide information on what tech people can use to help them in their own homes, to help them navigate, to help them stay in touch. Lots of them provide children and family services, others provide probably what you would describe as more traditional charitable services, things like befriending services information, lots of them have helplines. There's no blueprint really as to what these organisations do. They're all very responsive to the community they operate within. Staying on that, how much are blind and partially sighted people themselves involved in their policy making and the decisions about what they do? Increasingly so. I couldn't speak on behalf of all 110, but certainly the ones that I'm aware of and the ones that I speak to regularly do have representation and do respond very much to what the members of their community need them to do. How would you describe the relationship between your organisations and the local authorities within which they operate? I mean, isn't there a danger for you that if the local authorities are struggling, so will some of your organisations be? Because they often rely on money from local authorities to do some of their work. The charitable services that these organisations provide 
should be very much in addition to what the local authorities do rather than instead of or a replacement for. Most of these organisations, they're good at generating income. You're right to point out there is a bit of a funding crisis. Obviously, everyone is being hit by the cost of living and the state of the charitable economy that everyone operates within. So there are definitely funding challenges out there for these local organisations, as there are for local authorities. To what extent are you able to do really right down-to-earth things for local people? White canes, and perhaps kitchen aids, that kind of thing. Or indeed intervene if someone's trying to get a service to which they're entitled but not getting. The member organisations do have locations where people can go in and try before they buy. In those organisations, they will almost always have people on hand who can support the people who want to purchase the equipment and show them how to use it. They will advocate for people and assist them in getting the support they require in order for them to remain independent within their own community. Do you think there are still quite a lot of people out there who do need your help but just don't know that you exist? Yes, I think that is a key issue. But, you know, these organisations, although they're small, some of them are quite mighty and they're good at promoting themselves. They're good at developing relationships with other organisations. So places like the hospital should refer to the local organisation. Statutory service providers, social work should refer to the local organisations community-based libraries, things like that, should hold information. And of course, there's always good old Google. Many organisations which rely on volunteers have struggled during and since COVID. How much has that been a problem for your organisations? It really is a problem, Peter. I was speaking with one of our members this morning in Yorkshire. This is a very small organisation, has gone from 28 to 8 volunteers. That's something which we're hearing from a lot of the members, that COVID has changed something. So many services are saying this kind of thing, that we're three years on from Yeah, but it hasn't gone away, Peter. You know, and I think a lot of volunteers are older people and they may be still concerned about getting COVID or they don't want to be out mixing with a lot of different people. So COVID is still a thing. In a nutshell, what could you do for your potential beneficiaries that perhaps other bigger organisations can't? What the visionary members can do is respond quickly and effectively to a community-based need. So they deliver services that are relevant to the community that people live within at the point when they need them to be delivered. Fiona Sanford, thank you very much. Thank you. Now, if you're one of the millions of Doctor Who fans, the fact that the show recently celebrated its 60th anniversary won't have escaped your notice. It certainly didn't for Louis Morehouse, a confirmed Whovian, a word I only just come across, but it's a good one, who uh, hit on an idea to make tales of time travel more accessible to blind people like himself. Louis is with us. I mean, first of all, tell us about this passion you have for Doctor Who. So Doctor Who is something that I have been passionate about since I was about 10 years old and I'm 22 now, so uh, a fair few years. And it's just something that's been in the family, really. My brother was a big fan and I sort of inherited that, I suppose. And yeah, it's just been something that I've loved through the years. I watched it at the beginning of Matt Smith's era, kind of all the way through, and then 
sort of went back and discovered other sort of facets of it, you know, big finish and things like that. Um, yeah, it's just been a constant passion in my life, really, and I just, I just absolutely love it. Now, given that you want to make it more accessible, how difficult was it as a programme to follow? Because there's obviously there's a lot of visual stuff, isn't there? Mm, absolutely. And I think it was mainly sort of the older series that I found difficult to access because it's only recently that that's become available in an accessible way, you know, via iPlayer. When I first discovered the series, it just wasn't accessible at all. And I just didn't know what any of these characters looked like. I didn't know what any of the Doctors looked like. I didn't know what any of these classic villains looked like or anything like that. And I was just really keen to, to change that in any way that I could, really. So you get five pictures, which go to the first four Doctors, uh, the TARDIS, and a series of villains. You also get a USB stick, which contains audio descriptions of these pictures, and they sort of guide the fingers across the page, they describe the details. And between those two things, you can really build up quite an accurate sort of mental image of what these characters look like. To hear these descriptions read back by these voices that have been involved with the show that I've known, you know, for years on a project that I sort of started, it's, it was really quite, oh my God, we've actually done this, haven't we? <laughs> Unbelievable. In this tactile picture, the TARDIS is shown in flight, spinning around in space and moving off diagonally to the left. Start at the top middle of the page and trace down to find the light on the roof of the TARDIS. This blue light turns on and flashes when the TARDIS is on the move or materialises or dematerialises. Listening with us to that is Liz Davies, who's production manager from the charity Living Paintings, and they made the products that Louis's been talking about there. Liz, tell us a bit more about them and how they're made. Louis came to us with the idea several years ago now, and we're so delighted it's all coming to fruition. And we're doing all the doctors, we're doing also a kind of key or iconic adversary or alien accompanying them on the tactile picture, as well as the TARDIS. So it's really wonderful chunks of listening, experience, and also exploring the tactile pictures that takes you through the kind of different eras and ages of Doctor Who. And we worked with carvers to create the raised carved images that we then made multiple copies of in the vacuum form press which we press on plastic and they are the tactile pictures so they are original carvings we worked with scriptwriters and also the BBC to produce the audio guides. It has been a bit of an enterprise. Obviously, we don't have the staff team that the BBC do. <laughs> it was uh, me and Louie and, and a couple of other people along the way. Because we're a charity, we rely on volunteers, including the voices on the audio guide. And what about the kind of behind-the-scenes secrets that you reveal, such as how to sound like a Dalek, for instance? Oh, yes. There's lots of fantastic people involved in this that helped us on this journey, and they share their kind of nuggets and information, their anecdotes, and they bring lots of lovely stories to their audio guides. So here you can hear that sort of flutter just coming into my voice. There it is. So now I'm sounding as if I'm getting a really sore throat. <laughs> so if you just say exterminate, like that, exterminate, it doesn't really work. So here's where you really need to get into the part. So now I'm going to give you one of my top Dalek quotes. There is only one form of life that matters. 
Dalek life! Well, don't run away because I'm going to get you to explain how people can get hold of these. But I'm also pleased to say that the uh, good news on accessibility doesn't end there because to mark the Doctor's 60th anniversary, the BBC has released hundreds of episodes from the back catalogue of the show, complete with audio description. To get you in the mood, here's a quick snippet of how it sounds. Who's attacking us? A circular section of ceiling gives way and smoke fills the train carriage. Out of the smoke comes the intruders, Cybermen. They open fire with their wrist-mounted weapons and a fierce laser battle ensues. Two passengers are caught in the crossfire, but one by one, the attacking silver giants are gunned down. Well, Tom Williams, head of programming at BBC iPlayer, was involved in the work to make that happen and he joins me now. Tom, what was the inspiration for going to what must have been considerable lengths to produce all of this audio description? Well, we just had this magic moment, didn't we, Peter? With, as you said, the 60th anniversary, Shuti Gatwa taking over as Doctor Who and Russell T Davis coming back to run the whole thing. And he was very keen on us making everything available on iPlayer. And that job fell to me. And so we started to think, look, how can we make this as big and as impactful as possible? And the obvious thing to do was just to make sure everyone in the UK could access their favourite programme. All 900 episodes, with <laughs> subtitles, signing, and of course, audio description too. It really was a massive undertaking, just marshalling all of that stuff, really, and not to mention, yeah, all of the work that goes into creating the audio description and so mm. on. It's a big piece of work. Just to put a slight dampener on it all, Tom, you know, our listeners quite often complain that too few of the programmes mm. that they love are audio described. Can people take this as a sign that the BBC is perhaps making greater efforts in this area? Yeah, we could always do more, couldn't we, for sure. I'd like to say that it is, and because there's two things that we're doing here. One is bringing back programmes from the archive and making them available for longer. And I want to make as many of those fully accessible as possible. So I'm hoping we can start to really grow the catalogue of audio-described programmes on iPlayer. We have got a brilliant line-up there at the moment, of course. It's always worth looking at the audio-described category on iPlayer. We want iPlayer to be the best place to enjoy BBC programmes. Well, we couldn't complete this piece without speaking to the first and, as far as I know, only blind person to appear on the show. If anyone knows better, they can tell me. So welcome to what I like to think of as friend of the programme, because she first appeared on it when she was about 12, Ellie Woolwork. Hi. Um, Hi there, again. Um, Again, yep. First of all, I mean, were you a fan of Doctor Who before you were offered a part? I wouldn't call myself a Whovian, but I definitely have been aware of the show for years and years because my dad's a huge fan. It was quite a big deal to him when I was on the show. (laughs) I was going to say, he must have been very excited. I took him on set, actually, and that was really fun for him because he absolutely loved it. He was like a little boy on Christmas. It was adorable. (laughs) So I played Hannah, who was and, you know, still is in the Whovian world, a 14 or so year old Norwegian blind girl. She was sort of abandoned in a cabin in the middle of the woods. Her dad went missing and she wasn't having a great time. And then the doctor comes and saves the day. And I believe you will be part of this living paintings project yourself? 
I am going to be one of the voices. I'm going to lend my voice to these audio guides, which I'm so excited about because I used to use living paintings as a kid. So my school had a lot of the books. They would borrow them and I would sit in my little chair in the kitchen listening to these CDs, having the best time. So marrying up two really important parts of my life is just an absolute dream come true. I'm so, so excited. Moving slightly away from Doctor Who, what's your take at the moment on how accessible the industry is for blind people? You know, is it getting easier for would-be blind actors to get parts? I'd say it's getting easier, but there is still so much work to do because although there's been a lot of strides and a really, really like good amount of representation. For example, All the Light We Cannot See came out recently and that was incredible. Like I cried because I was just so, so excited that somebody was representing us. I just think there's always ways to go. And I think the whole attitude surrounding blind actors needs to shift into, well, we can do it and we're perfectly capable. People really need to stand up and look at us and make sure that they're thinking about us. And of course, uh, All the Light and the actress who played the part featured on In Touch a few weeks ago. Yes. I should stress... Finally, let me go back to Liz, because, I mean, people will be wondering, how do we get hold of these? Well, Living Paintings is a free postal library for anyone who's blind or partially sighted in the UK. You can log on to our website at livingpaintings.org or you can call us up on 01635299771 and we can send you out your first Doctor Who pack. We'll have to leave it there, but thank you very much. Liz Davis for the information, Louis Morehouse, Tom Williams and Ellie Woolwork. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for today. We welcome your comments and views on anything that we've covered or indeed, in your opinion, should be covering. You can email in touch at bbc.co.uk, leave your voice messages on 0161 836 1338 And we have a website with additional information, bbc.co.uk forward slash in touch, from where you can also download tonight's and previous editions of the programme. From me, Peter White, this week's producer, Fern Lullum, and studio managers Simon Highfield and Sharon Hughes, goodbye. Scaffolding and Skips News, week commencing 5th of February 2024. Newport area, Key House, Key Street, 7 High Street, 6 Dodner Mews, Dodner Lane, 30 High Street, Oggy's Chip Shop, 2 to 3 St Thomas's Square. Ride area, Nationwide, 3 St Thomas's Square, Cross Street, 2 St Thomas's Square, Job Centre, 150 High Street, 18A West Street, 9 St Thomas's Square, 132 High Street, Overbank, Upper Green Road, St Helens. East Cowes area, The Barracks, Guard House, Albany Road, 30 Alfred Street. Ventnor area, 2 East Street, Boots Chemist High Street. Shanklin area, 73 Regent Street, Jerome and Co, Steep Hill Chambers, Steep Hill Road. Yarmouth area, The Bank House, The Square.